You may remember in 2004, uh, Mel, the Mel Gibson box office hit movie came out, The Passion for the Christ. How many have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ? Okay, excellent. Uh, it quickly became the highest rating, highest R rating movie uh, financially, grossing the most money ever. Uh, the movie painfully follows about 12 hours of Jesus' life, and it depicts um, pretty well the pain and suffering and violence of the crucifixion. Um, the structure of the movie follows a 15th century tradition, some of you maybe didn't know this, from um, the Roman church that came to be known as the Stations of the Cross. In that tradition that came about in the 15th century, there are 14 stations of the cross. So the movie, if you've seen that, follows that tradition. Um, for example, here are the stations. Jesus is condemned to death. Well, that one's in the Bible. Jesus uh, carries the cross. Yes, he did that in the Bible. Jesus falls the first time. That is not in the Bible. He probably did. But this is one of the stations of the cross. Jesus meets his mother on the way to be crucified. Not in the Bible. Uh, Simon of Cyrene helps Jesus carry the cross. Yes, we're going to see that today. Veronica wipes the face of Jesus. Not in the Bible. It doesn't really hurt the story, but it's just not there. Uh, Jesus falls a second time. He probably did fall, but it's not in the Bible. Uh, Jesus meets the women of Jerusalem. It's not in the scriptures. Jesus falls a third time. Not recorded in scripture. Jesus is stripped of his garments. Yes, that was in the scriptures. The crucifixion, Jesus is nailed to the cross. Yes, we're going to see that. Uh, Jesus dies on the cross. Yes, that's in the scriptures. Jesus is taken down from the cross by Mary. Not in the scriptures. We're going to see that today. And Jesus is laid into the tomb. Yes. Seven are mentioned and seven are not mentioned in scripture. Um, if you were to go to the Vatican on Friday, you will see the Pope walk through the stations of the cross. And the, the value is just reflecting on the death of uh, Jesus. If you were to go to Jerusalem, you could uh, participate in a pilgrimage walking down the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering, the road that Jesus probably actually walked on when he carried his cross. And uh, our passage today covers this time period. It's pretty much the same that you see in the movie, although they're it's, it's okay in a movie, uh, by the way, I'm okay with this, that there's a little fiction added because you don't know every detail that happened and certainly uh, I'm going to make it. Just, I'm, I'll get it. Okay, I'm back. It's not very good with the left hand. So here we're going to start in John chapter 19. We're going to begin with verses 17 through 27. We're going to see the crucifixion of Jesus. We're beginning with verse 17. So have a look. At, uh, you need to have your Bibles open. We're going to follow uh, in the text. 
Um, verse 16 says, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Several things had happened up to this point. You remember, uh, Jesus had been arrested. He had had some religious trials and some uh, civil trials, and he, he appeared before Pilate, and he eventually was sentenced to death after the crowd yelled, crucify him. And then he was, you remember, he was also scourged. Um, he was beaten uh, with a, uh, a whip that had uh, sharp teeth and sharp metal that would have uh, definitely uh, been excruciating and opened up his back. So this, we come to verse 17. And remember, John doesn't give us every detail that the other writers do. John is just really simple when it comes to this part. Carrying his cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So it was common, and this was a humiliating thing for a, a, one who was accused, one who had been sentenced to crucifixion, to carry their own cross, that is, crossbar. They carried a, a timber, uh, would have been tied to their arms, and they were to carry it. And it was very humiliated to carry it through the streets of Jerusalem. And it was also kind of a long walk because they didn't do the crucifixion in the city. They, they had to go outside of the city walls for the crucifixion. Um, the soldiers who took charge of Jesus were five men. They were the execution squad, and they were professionals, and uh, this was their job, and they knew how to do this. Uh, four of them would have been, been legionnaires, and one of them would have been the centurion, and he would have been in charge, and he would have walked ahead. Golgotha would have been um, a fair distance, and uh, it was the name of a place, probably a, a hill that was shaped like a skull. Uh, Luke uh, uses the term Calvary to describe Golgotha. You've heard of Calvary. Some churches get named Calvary. No churches get named Golgotha. It means the place of the skull. Matthew adds this, Matthew 27, verse 31 and 32. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his clothes they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene, which would have been in North Africa, named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. John doesn't tell us this, but Jesus gets some help. Probably so weak that he's not able to carry his own cross, so they enlist Simon, and Simon is really forced to carry Jesus' cross. Mark will add that... Uh, Simon has two sons named Alexander and Rufus. Why does he do that? Probably because by the time Mark writes a few years later, maybe Simon has become a follower of Christ. And um, Alexander and Rufus also, they were known by the church, uh, Simon and Rufus. Crucifixion, verse 18. There they crucified him, that's at Golgotha, with, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. So we know there are two others. John doesn't tell us about that. Luke does. Two other thieves or robbers. They may have even been arrested with Barabbas. And um, one is crucified on each side. Luke tells us about the conversations they had. And Jesus uh, had the opportunity to invite one to join him in paradise on the same day. And apparently he accepted the Romans practiced crucifixion for slaves and criminals. And over a 500-year period, this might be helpful to know, 
they used at least three different methods of crucifixion because sometimes you hear contradictions when you hear about the crucifixion, like what was the cross really like? And the answer is, I don't know, but I have a guess. Um, one of the uh, ways that they crucified was they used a, a stake in the ground and then a beam across and it looked like a T. And so a person was just nailed to that T. I'm assuming their head was above the T. Another uh, structure they used was a cross, um, like an X. So like the X, and they just spread the person out. His head would have been in the middle on the X. That was one way they did it. Over a 500-year time, you can imagine they tried lots of different things. The other is what we call the traditional cross, and that's uh, the large beam in the ground and then a crossbar in the middle, and it looks just like a cross uh, that we see at churches. This is the one that Jesus would have been uh, this would have been used for Jesus. Sometimes victims were tied to the cross with cords. Sometimes they were nailed to the cross uh, through their wrist and their ankles. And sometimes they were nailed to the cross with their hands and their feet. And this is how Jesus was nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet. Um, crucifixion was designed to promote a slow and painful death. It was meant to, to be an example, to get people's attention, that crime is very serious, and the Romans take capital punishment very seriously. It could, a, a person could last on the cross for two or three days. That would not be a fun experience. And uh, they were left out in the open. It was cold at night, and uh, they attracted animals after a period of time, and not a good situation. Jesus was likely crucified about 9 a.m. on Friday. He had his last supper with his disciples on Thursday evening. He was awake all night, went through all the trials, and on the cross by around 9 a.m. Here's our first observation. When Jesus went to the cross, the God of the universe was still in charge of the affairs of men. You, you already knew that. But sometimes we just like forget. Is God in charge? Is God really in charge? Is God really sovereign? Application for us. God is still in charge of our circumstances even when they are hard and pay painful. Nothing has changed about God's sovereignty, that he is in charge. He's in charge of the universe. He's in charge of the affairs of men. He's also in charge of all the details of our life. Um, God was not surprised about anything uh, that happened to Jesus. He, was, he saw every step of the way to the cross. He was not surprised. He was not overpowered. He was orchestrating his plans as Jesus went to the cross. Now, let's make the application back to us. What if Jesus was your son? I can picture this because I'm old enough to have a son the same age as Jesus. What would, I, what would I do? What would I want? I would want God to change his plan. It's not working for me. What if Jesus was your brother? What would you want? What if uh, Jesus was your father? Would you want God to change his plans for you? And that's a good question. And... Um, I'd just like to remind us is that life is full of difficult situations. It's full of painful situations. It's full of discouraging 
situations, and we face health issues. We face issues with cancer or chronic pain or aging and sliding perhaps into something like Alzheimer's. We have heartaches uh, in relationships. People are sometimes unfaithful, and sometimes divorce happens. Sometimes people lose their jobs. Sometimes people face major financial issues um, and a loss of hope. And I just want to remind us that God is still in charge, and he's always been in charge, and he is sovereign. He still loves you. He's still leading you. You and I can trust him. And the question for us is, will we trust him with our situation and our circumstances? In verses 19 through 22, we have uh, the documentation at the cross. Uh, Here's more details. Look at verse 19. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So it was customary for the Romans to attach a sign over their victim or over their criminal to identify what their crime had been. What was Jesus' crime? His crime was he was king of the Jews, and he got crucified for it. Um, This was a public spectacle. It was meant to be humiliating to have a sign identifying your crime. The sign was written in three languages. Aramaic was the spoken language of Jerusalem in the first century. Not Hebrew. Aramaic was the spoken language of Jesus. It looked like Hebrew. Um, It was a lot like Hebrew, but Hebrew would have been more the, the language of the written Bible. Aramaic would have been the spoken language. The sign was also written in Latin. That would be the language of the Roman Empire, the language of Roman justice, the law. And then it was also written in Greek. And why Greek? Greek was the lingua franca of the day. It was the uh, commercial language. Anywhere you would go in the Roman Empire, you could uh, do commerce with, by speaking Greek and by writing Greek. So it was the language of the commerce. And so it was very public, and uh, there was a spectacle on display. Here's Jesus crucified on the cross. He is the king of the Jews. Verse 21. The chief priests and the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. So the sign deeply rankled the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, They did not want the sign king of the Jews. Why? Because Messiah was the king of the Jews. Messiah, the Christ, was the king of the Jews. They did not want him to be noted for being the Christ or the Messiah or the king of the Jews. They wanted it to be noted that he just claimed to be the king of the Jews. Why? Because for them, that's blasphemy. That's a That's a crime of capital punishment under the law of the Old Testament to say that you're God and you're not. The Jewish people understood that to be the king of the Jews would, in this case, refers to the Messiah who is equal with the Father. So they're kind of upset. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. Pilate says, tough, live with it, it's done, get on with your lives. 
And Pilate thinks he's gotten one over on his adversaries, the Jewish religious leaders. Observation. The sign over the cross was meant to show the Jewish leaders that Pilate was really in charge. This was Pilate's chance, you know. He finally gets a one-up. He's, he's been uh, passive, you know. Um, he, he had a, a hard time making a decision about Jesus. He, he tried to collect evidence. He kind of wanted to let Jesus off the hook. And uh, the religious leaders kept pressuring. And then the religious leaders... Um, influence the crowd to yell, crucify him. And so he gave in, and he didn't like that. He gave in, and he ordered Jesus to be crucified. Uh, Insight here, the sign was really to display God's Messiah, the Christ, to the world. Just think about that picture for a minute. Jesus nailed to the cross with a sign, King of the Jews. God was putting his son on display. We still read about it today. And God wants us to read about it. God the Father put his son on display for his nation, his people, and for us. This is the Messiah. This is the King of the Jews. This is the promised one. God was in charge even in the details of the sign. Jesus was indeed the King of the Jews. God's plan was to send Jesus, his son, into the world to be the savior of the world. God's plan was that Jesus would die to be the savior of the world, and he would pay the penalty of, the, of sin in the world. The sign displays God's purpose. Here he is. This is what God is doing. His son, the Christ, the king of the Jews. I'm reminded back of what... Uh, the Apostle John records in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. These are the words of John the Baptist when Jesus came to be uh, baptized. And I think John the Baptist gets this insight right on the spot. I don't think he uh, understood this very well until he got an insight right on the spot. And he says, Behold the Lamb of God. What is he saying? This is the one promised in Isaiah 53 that would be like a lamb before the slaughter. The lamb of God, Isaiah 53 spells this out, who takes away the sin of the world. And here he is. And here is on the Passover day, the sacrificial lamb of God displayed publicly as the king of the Jews. Verses 23 and 24, we see the clothing. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them. Now we know how many people are in the squad, the execution squad. Four legionnaires and one uh, centurion. And it's the legionnaires who divide uh, Jesus' clothes. Normal uh, garments of the day would have been, Jesus would have had a turban, he would have had an outer garment, he would have had a sash to tie everything together, and he would have had sandals, and they just split those up. This is a big deal, by the way. We don't get this. You know, you think about who wants these old, dirty clothes, and they've got blood on them. No way. They just wash them off. This stuff is like cash. You could sell this stuff on the market. This is cash in hand to have clothing like this. But there was a special piece of garment uh, 
with the undergarment remaining. The garment was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom, and this was valuable. We know that the high priest had a garment like this. This was a very special garment, somebody likely made for Jesus. It was a seamless garment, and they said, let's not tear it. Let's decide who will get it. This happened that scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. And two prophecies are fulfilled right there. Number one, who would know that the, that the garments of the Messiah would be divided at his death? Number two, who would know that the, that the garments would be, they would cast lots, they would gamble, they would do a game of chance to get Jesus' clothes. Psalm 22, verse 18. And David wrote that a thousand years before the crucifixion. Verse 25, the women near the cross, Jesus, um, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. So it's Mary, Jesus' mother. There's no mention of Joseph, and we just we have to assume that Joseph is probably dead. Uh, Mary's husband, Joseph. Then Mary's sister, this is likely Salome, and if it is, she was the mother of James and John, disciples of Jesus. Then is Mary, um, another Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then Mary Magdalene. Verses 26 and 27, uh, we, we, we meet a disciple. And just stop and think about this. Who's at the cross? The women. Where are the men? Not there. Where are the disciples? They ran. They're afraid. One disciple is going to be there, but it's the women who have the courage to go to the cross and identify with him and weep for him. But not the men. Verse 26, the disciples, the disciple, when Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. So who's the disciple? Throughout history, the disciple is identified with John, I think rightly so. John is the author of the book but he's the no-name disciple in the entire book. And every time you get to John, he's the guy without the name. And his audience understood, this is John. He's the one whom Jesus leaned back at the Last Supper and laid his head on on Jesus. Uh, And he calls himself the beloved disciple. Um, So you got one courageous disciple, John. He's at the foot of the cross. Where's Peter? Where's the leader? He denied Jesus three times, and he is nowhere to be found. Observation here. Jesus cared for his mother even when he's dying. He took the time to care for his mother. And so he asked John, John, I want you to care for my mom. And so John is going to take her into his home. John probably, James and John probably um, have a home in the city of Jerusalem. They are a well-to-do family. They have a fishing business. They hang out up north and around Canaan. That's where their business is headquartered. And, but they're, they're a family of some means. And if you remember, there was a disciple who knew Caiaphas, who, 
a disciple who had the ability to get in the courtyard at Caiaphas' house, and he took Peter in. It was John who took him in. Jesus cared for his mother even when he was dying. Application, Jesus shows us the priority of caring for our families even when it is hard. Jesus had no money to offer his mom. Jesus is not uh, going to be there for his mom's old age and death, but he is going to make provision for his mother the best he can. And um, I think by way of application, we can provide for our families. Um, So, another page uh, out of place. Sorry about that. So, um, just a reminder that God is the one who designed our families, and uh, we can't force relationships in our families, but we can provide love. We can love our families even when they're unlovable, and uh, we can love sacrificially. Verses 28 through 37. By the way, Jesus' brothers and sisters are not followers of Christ. Not yet. They aren't there. There's no record of them there. Uh, Now the death of Jesus, verses 28 through 37. We come to his thirst, verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. That's a key concept. Now been finished. And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Earlier, he was offered a drink. John doesn't record it. He doesn't want a drink. But now he's thirsty, and he wants a drink. Uh, he's severely dehydrated, by the way. I'm sure that he could hardly speak at all. And verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked a sponge and put it on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And so uh, the, probably the purpose for this is so Jesus can speak. He has some words to say, and he wants to speak. And, and the wine vinegar uh, was something that helped quench thirst. No, I can't imagine why, but it was better than water, and it enabled the person to speak. And uh, there's a clue here that the cross probably was only seven to nine feet tall because a hyssop branch was used. A hyssop branch would have been a kind of a stalk. Uh, for us, it'd be like a, a weed with a stalk, and and it, you could only hold it up about three feet or it'd bend over. And uh, so somehow they used this stalk of a hyssop plant to, with a sponge to get nourishment or get something to drink to Jesus. Verse 30, his finish, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Uses a language here that means um, paid in full. In the Greek commerce of the day, the the Greek word that's used here means paid in full. When Jesus now dies, the the sin penalty of the world is paid in full. It is finished. His life? No. The work he came to do to lay down his life is finished. Paid in full. Full, the work the Father gave him to do to provide salvation for all people. Luke 23, verse 46 says this. 
Jesus called with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. One thing the gospel writers make very clear is that nobody took Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life. It was his choice. He volunteered to be there. He was willing to be there. And right now, he is giving it away. Sure, Jesus could have come down from the cross if that's what he wanted to do. But he chose to give it away. Observation, Jesus died to do the will of the Father. Application for us, would you lay down your life to do the will of your heavenly Father? That's kind of personal, isn't it? Would you lay down your life to do the will of your Father? Um, a practical question for us is, will you die to self? Galatians 2.20 says this, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a really a practical application for the, for the believer. I've been crucified with Christ. When you place your faith in Christ, you identified with Jesus. The Apostle Paul understood that his old nature had been crucified with Christ. There had been an identification with Christ. And Paul says, now Christ lives in me. The, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So here's a question. Do you understand what the death of Christ means to you? You don't have to live an old life. You don't have to live according to what we describe as a sinful nature. You can live in the power of the Holy Spirit. You can live in the power of God's Son. And uh, just uh, another quick question is, are you willing to live by faith and follow Christ? To follow. Just follow. One day at a time. One step at a time. The proof of death, verse 31 through 37. Situation, verse 31. Now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have uh, the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So we have to keep in mind the next day starts at sundown. So this has been all day Friday. Jesus has been on the cross. Jesus is probably dead by 3 p.m., so they got 3 p.m. to sundown to get rid of the bodies. And uh, this, is a, this is a major issue in the, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, because if you left a body outside uh, overnight, the land would be desecrated. And so bodies were, were taken care of and they were to be buried uh, by sundown. And this is, this is Jerusalem, and there's a major uh, religious uh, holiday. It's going to carry on for a week. It starts at sundown. So the Jewish leaders didn't want these victims on the cross, and they asked Pilate to have the legs broken. So what's that all about? Well, the way that they hurried a, a death was uh, the executioners went around, and they smashed the legs of the victim. And uh, what's the big deal about that? It hurt. I don't know. I don't have any clue if it hurt. I'm sure it did, but um, the main thing is they were, 
in so much pain, and it was so difficult to breathe because they were placed on a cross where there was a little uh, wooden uh, place that they could kind of sit on for a little while, and then um, to, to breathe, they had to raise up on their legs so that they could inhale and get oxygen in their lungs. And after they do that, they, they swooped back down to sit, to rest. And then to breathe again, they had to come right back up. So you can imagine if you break the legs of your victim, guess what? They can't raise up to breathe. So they would die quickly because of a lack of oxygen. Verification, verses 32 through 34. The soldiers therefore came and uh, broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. So those two guys are still living and they get their legs broken. Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with his spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So these, uh, this execution squad, uh, is, they're professionals. This is not the first time they've done this. They know when someone is dead. They know death. And um, they conclude together, he's dead. We're, nope, we're not breaking this guy's legs. But one of the guys, just uh, standing there with his spear, just decides, let's do the double check here. And right on the spot, and then blood and water come forth. And this was the final proof for the execution that Jesus was dead. It was indeed finished. We see the eyewitness, verse 35 through 37. Verse 35, the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and testifies so that you also may believe. Who's the man? Who's the eyewitness? It's John. He's the one. He's the eyewitness. This is going to be a big deal about 40 years later when John writes. At, uh, it's like 50 or 60 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. John is going to write the Gospel of John. He's going to write the book of Revelation. And uh, there, there already is a, a false doctrine in the church about whether Jesus really lived or really uh, was in the flesh, but he was just a spirit. He was a ghost. Um, that was already uh, a false doctrine in the church. And, and John is saying, no, I was there. I saw it. In the flesh and the blood, he's dead. He's dead. That's proof. Observation. Evil men plotted the death and execution of Jesus. Remember the blue. The, the Jews plotted the execution of Jesus. They planned all through the gospel when they would take Jesus. They wanted to get him out of the way. Judas was part of the plot. He gave up Jesus. The Romans um, are, are responsible for making the decision. The Romans were the ones who scourged Jesus. The Romans were the one who nailed him to the cross. Application for us. God accomplishes his will through the smallest details in your life, even when evil people plot to suppress his will. God accomplishes his will through the smallest details. Just as God accomplished uh, his will in the most minute details in the life of Jesus, so he will work in the smallest details of your life. Do you really believe that? Do you look at the details of your life to watch God at work? 
Do you ask God for specific things and then look to see if he gives specific answers? It's one of the greatest ways is be specific. What is it that you need from God? Ask him specifically and look for the answer. So um, the disciples aren't there. They are afraid. Where is Jesus' family? Not there. The brave ones. Okay. I'm going to make a We're going to jump to the burial of Jesus uh, verse uh, 38 Later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. So um, Joseph of Arimathea comes on the scene. He's a secret disciple. And um, Joseph, uh, the scriptures tell us is a, from the other gospels, is a rich man. He's from Arimathea, a city 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Joseph uh, was also a part of the Sanhedrin, the most important ruling group in Israel. That means he's a Pharisee that um, is at the highest standing. He's a professional. He's a religious leader. And when uh, they decided to crucify Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea voted against crucifixion. He voted against the death penalty. He, he did not vote guilt for Jesus. So this is one of the secret disciples. And he has a, he's, this is a great risk that he steps forward. Uh, think about this. I remember re, uh, reading this as a new Christian, and I'm thinking, this guy, he's weak. You know, he's, he's, he's behind the scenes, he's a secret. Now he's just going to come forward for the burial? What kind of guy is this? This is extremely risky. It cost him everything to do this. Um, it cost him his professional standing. It probably cost him lots of friends. And he's going to come out and go all in for Jesus at his death. And he's going to take the body. He's going to get permission. He's going to go to the government to get permission. And now he's actually going to take the body for burial. Um, verse 39, he was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. So now you've got Joseph, a member of the ruling council, and Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Go back and learn about him. He's a Pharisee. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin, most important group in Israel. And he's a secret disciple. He's the one that Jesus told John 3.16 to, to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, somewhere along the way, has responded to, 
to Jesus. And they have put the Old Testament scriptures together about Messiah, and they uh, both now are followers of Jesus, and they're willing to risk everything because you can imagine they are worthless in Jerusalem after this. And, and their, uh, th- their bold faith is going to have a major impact on uh, religious leaders in the future if you read the book of Acts. Um, but these guys are starting to put the scriptures together that seem to be so hard for people to understand about Jesus. And so um, Nicodemus comes. He brings 75 pounds of spices to wrap the body. Uh, this is the way you buried a king. This is royalty. And 75 pounds were a lot of years' wages of the average person. 75 pounds of sp- spices. Uh, the preparation, verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it. First, they had to wash the body. These two uh, older, skilled, uh, professional men, not necessarily, I don't know if they've done a lot of uh, uh, burial preparations. There's no family of Jesus there. The disciples didn't come for the body. But these two guys come for the body. And uh, they, they wrap it in strips of lim- linen. This was in accordance to the Jewish laws. What they would have done, would they would have taken one finger at a time. After washing the body, they would have wrapped one finger at a time, and then the hand, and then the arm. They would have done the same with the feet and the legs and the entire body. And as they wrapped, they laced it with the spices. Verses 41 and 42, the burial at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which uh, no one had ever been laid. This is going to be significant because tombs were often used for many bodies, many family members over a long period of time. They were used over and over and over again. There had never been a body in this tomb before. There's going to be no mistake about bodies with this tomb. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this new tomb belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And... uh, it was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 9. By the way, the death of, the death of Jesus, this, this period that we've talked about today, filled 28, fulfilled 28 prophecies of the Old Testament. In Isaiah 53, 9, it says, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Two prophecies right there. Assigned a grave with the wicked. Who would that be? The, the guys he was crucified with? They would have been thrown into a common grave uh, it would have been a desecration for a Jewish person. And it, it, he ended up in a rich man's grave. And Isaiah prophesied that 800 years earlier. So Jesus was laid in the tomb. It's Friday right before sundown. Observation. God used a huge crisis to transform secret disciples into bold disciples. Application for us. God wants to transform you and me into having greater boldness as Christ followers. God wants to transform you and me. The big question is, is do we need a crisis? So they come to this major place in their life. Um, Jesus is the real deal. And he's put to death. And they're starting to put the pieces together. And they realize that death is not a failure. That's why he came. They're putting that all together. And they both come out publicly as very strong leaders 
by being servants. And sometimes uh, God uses specific events or crises to move us into action. And my question for you and I is, what is God doing right now in your life that he wants you to move into action? He wants you to do something. He wants you to get off the dime and step forward and follow and to speak for him or to live for him or to make a decision. What does God want you to do? I'd like to close in prayer. I can pray for a crisis if we, if we need any crisis. If you're happy with what you have already, let's stand together. Father, we just want to uh, pause in prayer and uh, acknowledge that you are the sovereign God. And as we watch the crucifixion and see the details, we're reminded that you are sovereign, that you are in charge, and that you are in control. And the same is true for us. You are in control right now. You are in uh, charge of our history and our lives. It's my prayer that we would be open, that we would look for that, that we would watch for you to answer, that we would look for the things that you're doing in our lives on a daily basis, that we would give you credit and give you praise and give you thanks for what you're doing, for your faithfulness to us. And God, as we consider our lives and the events that we are in, what is it you want us to do to be bold, to step forward, to go all in for? I pray that you would show us that even right now as we stand together, that you'll give us courage to walk with you, to ask for your help and your strength so that we may honor you in all that we do for Jesus' sake. Amen.